Leviticus 11, starting at verse 41. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Every swarming thing that swarms on the ground is detestable. It shall not be eaten. Whatever goes on its belly and whatever goes on all fours or whatever has many feet, any swarming thing that swarms on the ground you shall not eat, for they are detestable. You shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms, and you shall not defile yourself with them and become unclean through them. For I, the Lord your God, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. And as you do, if you would please bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and honoring in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name alone that we pray. Amen. Well, if you were to drive by our house in Jacksonville right now, you would see something that is very distinct that no other house in our neighborhood has right now. And that thing is named Oscar. It is the name that our children gave to this snowman who is about six foot tall. And we put him in the corner of our yard that gets hardly any sunlight. And so despite the rain that we've gotten this morning, he is still standing proud. He will probably be there for, I don't know, uh, maybe till Tuesday. I hear it's going to get warm on Tuesday. Uh, but he is standing there. He is facing the road. He's got a couple of gloves on. He is waving. And uh, we get to see people smile <laughs> as they drive by. Um, it is our pride and joy <laughs> to have Oscar with us. Uh, we made him, I believe it was on Wednesday. The snow was just perfect for uh, a snowman and uh, for making snowballs. So he is going to be with us for a while. Uh, but there is something about the snow, uh, something about the falling snow as it is coming down. Uh, I know we don't get a ton here in Arkansas, but when it comes down and just covers the ground and it turns everything just white, there's this, there's this sense of, of cleanliness, of, of purity, of, of things being undefiled. And then we drive on it and it starts to melt and it doesn't look so great anymore, but there's that magical moment, you know, where it just looks beautiful, it's pristine almost giving the sense of holiness. And holiness is what we will be discussing this morning as we look through the book of Leviticus. It is about a holy God and about a holy people. Now, just in way of brief review, uh, we've been looking at the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, been looking at uh, our God, His relationship with His people, the fact that He has made a covenant with his people, that he has entered into relationship with them. It's a relationship based on grace. But in order to be in this relationship with God, 
there are certain standards that need to be met because our God is a holy God. And people cannot be in His presence unless they themselves are pure and clean and holy. The way the Israelites are currently, they can't have a relationship with God in their current condition. They need to be cleansed. They need to have their sins atoned for. And how is that possible? Well, Leviticus, in great detail, tells us how that is possible. And God calls His people to be holy as He is holy. Now, Leviticus is a difficult book to understand. Um, I'm not doing it this year, but uh, typically what I do throughout the year is to go through the book of, uh, go, read through the Bible in a year. Um, usually Genesis and Exodus are pretty good. And then as you get through Leviticus, things start to struggle. Uh, because it's very difficult to, to understand exactly what is going on here. There is great detail given, as you saw this morning. I think the word swarm and swarming is mentioned no less than 20 times in those verses. Um, Moses goes into great detail uh, about the requirements of holiness. God is our holy king, and he requires his people to be holy. And God called his people to be holy in every aspect of their lives, out of gratitude for the mercy that He had shown them. He had brought them up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And He says, be holy as I am holy. But God's people failed constantly to be holy. Constantly. Every single day. God's people consistently failed to keep God's law, but temporary atonement could be found in these animal sacrifices. And God goes into great detail to describe these sacrifices of what is required, what is required of the priest, what is required of the sacrifice, the actions that need to happen. Uh, It's very detailed. And in the midst of this book, one of the reasons, well, the reasons why it's called Leviticus, meaning about the Levites, is that God called one tribe, uh, one tribe in Israel to be his priests, the Levites. They were the ones who took care of the tabernacle. They are the ones who led people and worshipped. They performed sacrifices on behalf of the people. The important thing to realize that this system that was put in place, this sacrificial system, was intended to be temporary. The system of animal sacrifices was never designed to be permanent. The animal sacrifices pointed ahead to Christ, who was going to be the perfect sacrifice. And when he died, he paid the penalty for sin once and for all. And this is why we don't engage in these animal sacrifices anymore. So Leviticus teaches us that God is holy. Now this word holy, what exactly does that mean? It's the Hebrew word kadash. What does it mean that God is holy? I feel like holiness is kind of like love. I think we struggle with with the definition of it. We know what it is, we get the sense of it, but to to actually give it words is difficult. 
Uh, for us to understand the holiness of God, there's a passage in Scripture in the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. And this is Isaiah's experience with God's holiness. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim, Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. On a side note, I, I was listening to a recording this week that Bill Dempsey gave me. And one of the things I learned is that when something is repeated in Scripture three times, that is extremely significant. When you repeat it twice, it's like, uh, we would say like, very holy. But the Hebrews, they would say, holy, holy. But when you repeat it three times, it is just beyond magnitude. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. This is Isaiah's experience with the holiness of God. You know, holiness is a concept for us. It's it's the epitome of of purity, of of cleanliness, the epitome of of being free from defilement, of being unpolluted. It is something sacred or consecrated, something that that is dedicated for special use, something set apart, singled out, something that is, that is worth being hollowed. That's why when we start off the Lord's Prayer, we say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, because he is holy. And Isaiah experienced this purity of God in his vision as he saw God on his throne, as he listened to the seraphim worship, calling him holy, holy, holy. But holiness isn't just this intellectual concept. Holiness elicits a response. When you come face to face with holiness, you react like Isaiah reacted. Now, when I lived in Augusta, I was there for five years. And one year, I think it was the second year I was there, uh, I was able, uh, by God's grace, to visit Augusta National, the golf course there. Um, If you live there, you know that this is, in a sense, a place that is just unattainable, unreachable. It, is, uh, it's not, it doesn't have walls around it, but it has these very thick trees that there is no possible way for you to see inside. Um, and uh, I was given tickets to the practice round on a Monday, uh, which is the first day that, that golfers start showing up there. And uh, as soon as you step out into this golf course, you are, it feels like you're, you're stepping into what heaven is going to be like. There is not a single weed anywhere. It is unbelievable. 
Uh, no matter what the weather is like, if it's cold or if it's hot, the azaleas there are always in perfect bloom. Uh, they use ice to keep it cool if it's getting too hot. They use hair dryers to warm them up if it's, if it's too cold. It is unbelievable. This place is pristine. Um, and what you do on a, on a practice round or uh, when you're there for the tournament, you can do a couple of things. You can walk around with a group of golfers and you can follow them. Uh, or you can find a place by a hole and just watch as, as various golfers come by. And so I, I did a, very, uh, a variation of those two things on that day. I wanted to, to experience the whole course. It was, it was amazing. And uh, as my friend and I were leaving the course, we noticed that there was a, a large crowd by the practice green, um, thinking that someone who was important was, going, was over there. We, we traveled over there. And lo and behold, who would it be uh, but Tiger Woods? Uh, this was uh, before the scandal. <laughs> Back when he was the number one golfer in the world, back when every tournament that he entered into, you knew that he was going to win. Um, this was him at the prime of his career. Um, and he was just surrounded by all these people just wanting to see him putt. Just to see him putt. Um, and honestly, there was just this, this sense of, of wonder uh, at Tiger Woods uh, in the, at the height of his career. He, just by being there on the putting green, he was filling people with this sense of awe. Now, I'm not saying that Tiger Woods is holy. Um, he has unfortunately proved that he is not, just like the rest of us. But seeing him caused a response in the crowd. It actually caused a response in me. Isaiah's response to the holiness of God is the sense of awe and dread. He feels like he will come simply undone. Just come apart at the seams. He is so overwhelmed by the holiness of God that he feels like he will just fall apart at that very moment. God is so pure, so radiant, that anything else in his presence that is not also holy would simply be lost, Isaiah says. So God tells his people in Leviticus to be holy as I am. This doesn't mean that God desires us to ascend to his level. He is on a level of holiness that we will never achieve. God does require purity and cleanliness and a, a removal of the impurity from his people in order to be in his presence. So God required his people, the nation of Israel, to be holy. So all the rituals, all the sacrifices that we see in Leviticus are designed for God's people to be holy, to be able to enter into His presence, to cleanse them from their defilement, uh, to make them pure and acceptable, to give them the ability to have this relationship with God. But because of their sin, the Israelites had become defiled. They had become dirty, impure. And so God gave them this gift uh, of animal sacrifices, the blood of animals being shed to atone for the sins of the people. He gave them the, the gift of the Day of Atonement, this culmination of all these sacrifices where the priest would go into the Holy of Holies on one day of the year. They would offer the sacrifices for the sins of the people. He would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant to atone for their sins. But all the rituals and all the sacrifices that needed to happen 
Um, well, it's amazing. Let me, let me back up. It is amazing how many rituals and how many sacrifices needed to happen in order for the sins of the people to be atoned and for them to be clean. This tells me two things. It tells us just how holy God is. And we talked about that a little bit last week as well. The standard of holiness, to be in the presence of God, was so extremely high. And Isaiah saw that. God is so incredibly holy. And it shows us also just how sinful Israel was. All these things that we read about in Leviticus needed to happen to keep the people pure and to keep them clean. There was all these sacrifices, all these cleansings. Honestly, to do all these things that are required here in the book of Leviticus, it would be a full-time job. You would be cleansing yourself, offering sacrifices day in and day out, repeatedly, just so that you can be in God's presence. Uh, they're that involved. But here's what we learn from this. As we read through the book of Leviticus, this becomes abundantly clear. And this is what I find so comforting about this book, is that God actually desires His people to be in His presence. Let me say that again. God desires for His people to be with Him in His presence. He desires that relationship with them, with us. God provided a way for the Israelites to be holy like He was holy so that they could live in relationship with Him. He provided a way for them to be clean, to be free from devilement, to be pure. Granted, the system was extremely complex, very involved. But God wasn't being unnecessarily cruel by giving them all these requirements. It's just that the effects of our sin go so deep. They're so pervasive. It is a big deal. But the system of Leviticus was temporary. And it was always meant to be that way. God was preparing for the day when the temporary would be replaced by the permanent. Where this imperfect system would be replaced by perfection. And God desires for us to live in His presence today. This is the beauty of Leviticus. He has provided for us a permanent sacrifice by a perfect high priest so that we can be permanently holy and live permanently in the presence of God. And this is what we need to understand. That God desires for His people to live permanently in His presence, so He has provided the perfect and permanent sacrifice, the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. God desires for His people to be with Him in relationship. He desires for you and for me to be with Him in His presence. Christ fulfills Leviticus. And He fulfills Leviticus so completely and so permanently. And it is very clear as you read through it how Leviticus points to Christ. Sacrifices, the rituals, the shedding of blood, the Day of Atonement, the office of the High Priest, for us, looking back on it, it is so clear how Christ is so evident in this book. But it wasn't always so clear. 
It wasn't so clear for the Israelites when they received this book. Uh, It wasn't even clear for early Christians. And so God gave an incredible gift. It's the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Uh, It's such a fascinating book. Uh, We don't know exactly who the author is. There's a lot of speculation. Maybe it was Paul. Maybe it was somebody else. Um, But it was obviously a Jew, someone who knew uh, the Old Testament Scriptures, who knew the promises of God, knew the sacrificial system, understood the office of the high priest. Uh, And the book of Hebrews explains how Christ is a fulfillment of all these Old Testament passages and uh, this system. Under the system of Leviticus, the sacrifices had to continue because they only provided temporary holiness and temporary atonement for sin. But this is what the, the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 9, starting at verse 11 through 14. It says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood and goats and calves, but by the means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purifying our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, Christ became our permanent high priest in His death, opening up permanent access to God. The high priest was the go-between. He was the mediator for the people. He gave them access to God. And it was one day out of the year, on that day of atonement, where he would go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood there uh, on the Ark of the Covenant and then come out. But you know what happened when Christ died? This amazing thing. The earth shook and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. This is so significant. This is Matthew 27, verses 50 and 51. It says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. Now the presence of God isn't reserved for one man on one day out of the year. The gift of God's presence is with each and every one of us every day of the year. If you want to use the common lingo, God is with us now 24-7, 365. There is not a time or a place where God is not present with His people. Christ was sacrificed once and for all. His blood poured out once and for all. For Israel, the temporary sacrifices had to maintain. But today, because of the perfect sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God, our atonement is permanent. It was done once and for all. To quote Jesus from the cross, it is finished. 
So as we celebrate communion this morning, what we are celebrating is the fulfillment of Leviticus. It's a beautiful thing. Who knew that something that is so familiar to us, like the table, is linked to something that can be very difficult and confusing, this this sacrificial system we find in Leviticus. But as we come to the table, we come knowing that we have come into the presence of a holy God, that He is with us. We come into the presence of a God who desires for us to be there with Him, to be in relationship with Him. He has provided us a way to stand before Him, pure and undefiled, holy as He is holy. Not by our own works, not even through the blood of sheep and of goats and of bulls, but through the crucified body, through the shed blood of His Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So as we prepare for communion this morning, uh, Heath has chosen for us the song, The Church's One Foundation. And I want to read the first verse of that for us before we sing it. Notice how this first verse speaks of holiness. It says, The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is His new creation by water and the Word. From heaven He came and sought her to be his holy bride. And with his own blood, he bought her. And for her life, that is, for our lives, he died.